Thank you for tuning in to The Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. The Tale of Ganji or Ganji Monogatari is a classic work of Japanese literature written in the early 11th century by the noblewoman and lady in waiting Murasaki Shikibu. The work recounts the fictional life of Hikaru Ganji or Radiant Prince, who's the son of an ancient Japanese emperor known to readers as Emperor Kiritsubo and a low ranking concubine called Kiritsubo Consort. Due to the intense political conflicts at the court and out of protection for his son, the emperor removes Ganji from the line of succession, demoting him to a commoner by giving him the surname Minamoto so that he pursues a career as an imperial officer. The tale concentrates on Ganji's romantic life and describes the customs of the aristocratic society of the time. With us today is Professor Edward Kamens, Sumitomo Professor of Japanese Studies, East Asian Languages and Literatures at Yale University. Professor Kamens will share his expertise on the history of the work's translations, as well as how other modes of interpretation shape our understanding of the work. Thank you so much for coming to the show, Professor Kamens. Could you tell our audience about your relationship with the work? Yes, hello, Claire. I'm happy to be talking about the tale of Genji with you and others who are joining us, whether to learn about it for the first time or to learn more about it if it's already part of their experience. I actually am approaching the end of my active teaching years, but this is a literary work that I have been engaged with in one way or another for close to 50 years. In fact, my first encounter with the tale of Genji in translation in a college course I took as a first year undergraduate, actually the single most important thing that set me on the path to the scholarship and teaching that I've been doing in the area of classical, or what sometimes people call pre-modern Japanese literature. And so it's been right there at the core of my research interests, and of course, central to much of my teaching, right along with all the issues that we've come to think about in connection to world literature, which is, you know, so utterly dependent on translation. So I'm glad we have an opportunity to talk about all these things in relationship to one another. Could you shed some light on the background of the author, especially on her literary training in Chinese literature, and how this training influenced her rhetoric and narrative strategies regarding the cross-cultural transmission of Confucianism, Buddhism, and the aesthetics of Tang poetry to Japan? Well, we really wish we knew more about her. <laughs> we really don't even know her actual name. Um, Murasaki Shikibu is just a kind of sobriquet or nickname that combines the name of a central character in her tale, a woman named Murasaki, mm-hmm. along with a court title, Shikibu, that means something like secretary. And it was just one of several appellations that were used in place of personal names in court society, actually for both men and women. So most of what we do know about her, or think we know, is derived from a very fragmentary diary. It's called the Diary of Murasaki Shikibu, and it's taken to be her own personal diary, although it's got letters in it, and it's got poems in it, and it, it's kind of a hodgepodge and isn't a conventional diary at all. But anyway, among other things, you can read there 
her own description about how she was, uh, as a child or young girl, she was eavesdropping when her father, who was a middle-ranking courtier, mm -hmm. from a not particularly, not, well, let's say, not undistinguished lineage of scholar poets, he was giving her brother instruction in the Chinese classics as was the standard way of educating a young man. But she confesses that she was a better student than her brother was, although she was also kind of a secret one. She was listening from the other side of a curtain because that kind of education wasn't normally expected to be part of a woman's training for service, cultural service in the court. Mm -hmm. Um, and the diaries also where we read an episode where she's given this nickname, Murasaki, and another episode where she tells how her employer at court, the Empress Shoshi, asked her, again, in secret, to give her instruction to be her tutor in reading the collected works of the great Tang Chinese poet Bai Jui, the poet from the Tang period that was most beloved, most intensely read uh, by educated readers uh, in, in her time. Mm -hmm. uh, so that shed some light to some extent on the way that she was then able to weave allusions and quotations from that poet's most famous poems into the text of the tale. And she does that right from its opening pages. But there's so much else that she weaves into it from so many different sources that I think we'd overlook a lot if we just focused on the evidence of her familiarity with Tang poetry or the teachings of Confucius or, or, the, or Buddhism. Those are all there um, and they're all there in various forms. But there's so much that, else that went on into the making of the Monogatari. Let's talk about what monogatari is and how does this concept converge with and differ from other genres of fiction. Are we justified in thinking of this work as the first novel, as it has been said to be? Well, so the word monogatari literally means talk or talking about things. And among other things, that term for a work of narrative fiction suggests, and many scholars have shown this, that the genre had oral storytelling and performing aspects uh, in its origins and development and kept them right through the time that Murasaki Shikibu was writing the tale. And in fact, there's more than one scene in the tale that describes a monogatari being read out loud, also <laughs> sometimes accompanied by illustrations that the reading audience is uh, gazing at while they're hearing somebody read the text. And Almost always, as it happens, this audience and the readers are women. So one thing to keep in mind is that in some senses, this genre, monogatari, is gendered. Mm -hmm. We also know that men were also among the really avid readers of the tale of Genji. They were asking for the next chapter, even while she was she, the author, Murasaki Shikibu. It was kind of leaking uh, out into uh, among court readers. So about this issue of the novel, the scholarly consensus today is there are all kinds of ways to talk about what's novelistic in the tale, which is to say features of its style, its relationship to, and the way it contains various kinds of discourse or its heteroglossia 
the term that Bakhtin used for this aspect of the modern Western novel. And it also has what we think of as the psychological insights that are revealed through shifting modes of the narrative's representation of the emotional interiorities of the characters. That's something else that we think of as one of the hallmarks of the novel. But of course, the term and the concept and the genre of the novel, if we regard that as an early modern European phenomenon, obviously wouldn't be something that couldn't have been known or even dreamt of by Murasaki Shikibu or other authors of works like it, the Monogatari. Um, and there are several subgenres and many different variations on that as well. So using the term novel or claiming that the Genji is the first novel is seems a little misleading um, and also perhaps anachronistic. Um, that said, I, I think there are also many scholars of many literatures and of world literature who can point to these novelistic aspects of many texts that predate the early 11th century when the tale of Genji was written and would contest the claim that it is the first so-called. So I think what matters not so much is this idea of firstness, but the qualities in the work that have made it matter to so many readers for so long uh, now in the contemporary world and in multiplying languages and media through the medium of translation. Mm -hmm. In what ways should we approach the tale of Ganji within the framework of world literature? Well, we could first spend quite a bit of our time trying to settle on a definition of what we agree the world literature is or isn't, right? Mm -hmm. But in this case, I, I think we could simply agree that the tale of Genji's place in world literature is a fait accompli, and that this is the result of its enduring central status as a landmark of Japanese literature on the one hand, but that it has been worlded or globalized through translation. And of course, here, translation can mean several things. For modern and contemporary readers in Japan, it's been made accessible through a series of translations from the original classical into modern Japanese. The difference between those languages is roughly, to oversimplify a bit, is it's something like the relationship of old English to modern English or classical Latin to medieval Latin and onward from those Latins to the various Romance languages. Um, and then there's the long history of Monogatari, such as the Tale of Genji, and especially it, being translated into other media. Works of pictorial art produced with it, probably from the get-go in the 11th century, and then into many visual forms like painting and prints and onward right up to the present day in cinema, manga, anime, and other contemporary media. And also with, as with, uh, it's true for so many classics, there are, for the tale of Genji, there are, um, early modern and contemporary parodies and updates and all kinds of spin-offs. Um, but I think if we were to agree that the enabling of worldwide access to a text through translation into multiple languages is a sine qua non for any particular work's inclusion or recognition as world literature, then I think the tale of Genji arrived there quite a while ago. 
perhaps not before Goethe first started talking about Welt Literatur in the 18th century, but certainly before it became a keyword uh, in scholarship and, and teaching the way we practice it today. You're listening to The Global Novel, a podcast that surveys the narratology of world literatures from antiquity to modernity through a critical lens and aims to make academic education in literature accessible to the world. You can now join our social media communities on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Tumblr. Please consider supporting us through theglobalnovel.com slash donate. Coming up for the second half of this episode is Professor Caymans at Yale University talking about his essay in which he suggests a different mode of reading of the tale of Ganji. So, Professor Caymans, one of the highlights of world literature, according to David Damrosch in his 2003 book called What is World Literature is, it's nuanced and localized the cosmopolitanism. And I think this observation jibes with a philosophical perspective that you have proposed in your essay on Tale of Ganji, which is titled Flares in the Garden, Darkness in the Heart, Exteriority, Interiority, and the Role of the Poems in the Tale of Ganji. In this essay, you proposed a, a sort of interchangeable perspective as a mode of reading the Tale of Ganji by drawing an analogy to the genre of painted screens of early modern Kyoto called Inside and Outside of the Capital, so as to propose a method of interpreting the work. And in particular, as far as I understand, you advise the readers to imagine the painter who delineated these panoramic views purely out of imagination and perhaps also based on his own memories, right? And by doing this, you propose to think about the interchangeable relationship between inside and outside points of view and perspectives, as well as the parts and holes, especially the parts that are poems in the tale. For example, parts that can radiate to a larger panoramic picture of the ethos that the tale of Ganji embodies. So as far as I understand, the suggestion of your proposal is that the tale of Ganji possesses this sort of novelistic capacity to draw the reader into an imaginary world that they can examine and experience as if before their eyes, but also in addition in a way to see into the heart and minds of its characters, right? That's good reading of my essay. You know, the enabling of a reader's perception of a text's capacity to sustain the illusion of having entered into a fictional character's psyche or inner world is regarded as another of the hallmarks of this thing that we call the novelistic. Uh, and the tale of Genji does this in, again, a number of ways. Um, as you suggested, the, narr the narrator gets us right into inside the protagonist's heads and reveals to us as readers what they're thinking. And often what really interests me is that those thoughts take the form of poems, which are something that the text is full of. And some of those poems are embedded in the text, understood that they're written as letters or other forms of communication from one character or another. And we get to read um, those letters or they're uttered in between people in conversation. But a lot of those poems are never anything other than internal. Not We wouldn't say in the, in the mind's eye, but in the mind's mouth, as it were, right? Mm -hmm. So 
At the same time, the, the tail has this seemingly magical power to conjure imaginary places and spaces. So that's another set of exteriors. You get urban neighborhoods, high and low class. You get palace grounds and sea roads and people traveling along mountain paths. And you also get the interiors. You get the spaces that are inside those palaces, villas and rooms inside monasteries and their gardens, especially their gardens are really important. So, you know, the first part of the title of the article that you mentioned refers to a poetic figure that serves as a chapter title. And in fact, a lot of the 54 chapters of the tale, the titles come from some predominant poetic figure that occurs in one of the poems in that chapter. In this case, uh, Flares in the Darkness comes from this scene in which Flares, torches are set out uh, in a garden on a summer night to illuminate the garden that is within one of Genji's mansions. And then those flares serve Genji as a figure, a metaphor in a poem that he utters, where he's talking about and revealing his own inner burning passions, like those torches or flares. And then the second part of the title, Darkness in the Heart, is actually another, even more familiar poetic figure it's one that surfaces repeatedly in the tale and in a whole host of different contexts. And these all also have to do with inner emotional turmoil. I'll just mention that in another essay that was recently uh, published of mine in Japanese, I made a point of discussing that Japanese poetic figure, darkness in or of the heart, alongside Joseph Conrad's very different heart of darkness. And in that essay, my point was to try to show what happens for scholars and readers once we do, in fact, treat the tale of Genji, not just as a masterpiece of Japanese culture, but as part of world literature, where we can make these sorts of juxtapositions for a readership and audience that experiences the literature of the world as a global phenomenon. Right. Perhaps we'll see that translated into English one of these days. Meanwhile, your essay also discusses intertextuality as one aspect of the work the text does to produce the reader's sense of being both inside and outside the text. And you focused particularly on poems and their intertextual aspects in that part of our argument. So I wonder if you could share more about that. I sure could, because this is one of my most favorite things to talk about with respect to Japanese literature. So classical Japanese poetry actually functions as a vast intertextual network or matrix. There's this penchant in the practice and tradition of Japanese poetry and a value placed on artful, elusive gesture that one poem makes to another. And that goes into the design of a poem each time it, it's made. The poet often will use some memorable or evocative phrase or a figure that's prominent in one or usually several, lots of other poems. Um, and in addition to that, there's the consistent, almost exclusive use of just one single short form for this classical Japanese poem. Uh, it has five lines, really phrases, with a total of 31 beats. 
So both in terms of form and this penchant for elusive gesture, uh, one could pretty much say, I think it's without exaggeration, that in a- We hope you have enjoyed the episode so far. If you want to hear the entire episode, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening.